0: From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School.
1: This is Launchpad on Business Radio. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Launchpad on Business Radio, Series XM 132. I'm Carl Ulrich, and I'm a professor at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania, where I teach innovation, entrepreneurship, and product design. Let's jump right in. My first guest Today is Dave Heath, who is the CEO and co-founder of Bombas.com. Dave, thanks for joining us.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: So Dave, give us the elevator pitch. What's Bombas all about?
0: So Bombas is a premium comfort basics brand with a mission to help those in need. Um, Breaking that down a little bit, uh, it basically means that we're exclusively focused on the top drawer. So socks, underwear, and T-shirts. And then, because we learned that these are the three most requested clothing items at homeless shelters, we donate an item for every item we sell to someone in need.
1: All right. So, Dave, I did you when you were growing up uh, in maybe in college, did you say, you know, I really want to be the king of of underwear, socks, and the top drawer? <laughs> Where did this idea come from? I think. Yeah, I don't think anybody
0: ever grows up uh, wanting to be a socktrepreneur. Um, but, uh, you know, um, no, so the, so the idea was, I, I knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur. My, my dad was an entrepreneur. I, you know, I watched him start a business in the basement of our house and over 35 years, build it brick by brick into, you know, a, a multimillion dollar business. So I was always inspired and, and, you know, knew that that was something that I wanted to do. But um, I went to school for entrepreneurship and I graduated and kind of always had my eyes open and my ears to the ground uh, looking out for any opportunity. And, you know, what do they always say? Like opportunity uh, strikes when you least expect it. Um, I was scrolling on Facebook back in 2010 and someone had posted this you know, picture and it said, socks are the number one most requested clothing item at homeless shelters. And I kind of sat there and I was like, wow, that's pretty sad. Here's an item of clothing that I've never spent more than a few seconds a day thinking about. And yet this item of clothing is perceived as a luxury item for over 600,000 people living here in the US. And that's kind of when I was like, wow, you know, I want to kind of help solve this problem. At the same time, I kind of looked down at my own two feet and was like, "Huh, I'm wearing the same brand of cheap white tube sock that I've been wearing since I was a kid and that my parents had been wearing for generations before me. And I was like, wow, this product is pretty terrible. And yet I'm spending, you know, a hundred bucks on Nike sneakers, or, you know, I care about what jeans I'm buying. Uh, and I was like, wow, maybe this is the opportunity, right? Help fix this broken product category, you know, at the same time, solve a problem in our community." And, you know, I thought, okay, if we could donate a lot of socks, you know, it would solve the problem. And in order to donate a lot, we would need to sell a lot. And in order to sell a lot, we had to create the best, you know, socks in the history of feet.
1: All right, Dave. Well, that, that's the nice segue into what those socks really are. So I got to tell you my own sock uh, background. When I was in college, um, I convened on, converged on the system, which is I, I, I found a ankle-high cycling sock, Called Wooly Bullies that I really liked, and I bought 200 pairs and put them in a five-gallon uh, paint bucket. And every so often, I just redo the whole thing. But then I don't. I can wear them with a tuxedo or cycling, and uh, so that's been my sock solution. I obviously need some help. Tell us what's so broken about the sock business and what Bombas does that makes socks better.
0: Well, I think I think you you kind of hit the nail on the head with your own example, right? What I kind of discovered was that for the large majority of the mass market consumer product, uh, you know, stuff that, you know, you go to a store and it's 12 pairs in a cheap plastic bag and, you know, low, low cost and low quality were really the name of the game. It was a commodity category what what else do you buy in a bag of 12 you know toilet paper and paper towels right <laughs> this is like how the product was conceived or like thought about by the people who are making this product and yet I discovered in the niche specialty market like cycling and running and hiking and ski that there was actually a tremendous amount of product innovation things like yeah. seamless toe and arch support and comfort footbeds and merino wool fibers or specialty fabrics and I thought huh you don't need to be, a marathon runner in order to appreciate a comfortable pair of socks. So my whole hypothesis was, well, why don't I just take all of the innovation and technology that you find in the specialty performance market and bring it over to the mass market, you know, com- consumer type product in a designed package that does allow you to actually wear it with a tuxedo, or does allow you to wear it, you know, with a pair of running shorts to the gym. It was this kind of multi-purpose, multifunctional product that the core athletic sock, the, the, the what we have all learned to be an athletic sock, this kind of white tube sock could be so much better and mm-hmm. we produced the product and turns out a lot of people really liked it.
1: Yeah, that that's pretty interesting. I mean, if I look at your website today, it, it strikes me that you're doing a lot more than that. And, and, well, let me be more precise. It seems like you're also playing off fun and variety in the sock category did was that part of the initial proposition or did you originally go start from this performance functionality bring the performance of an athletic sock into everyday wear and eventually end up with more fun or did fun start out as part of the proposition yeah
0: i think when we started the business you know, there was already this consumer trend, especially in men's dress socks, where you were starting to see bright colors and patterns and, you know, funky designs. Um, and, you know, but then you'd go into the athletic sock market, even in the like performance side, and most of it was black, white and gray. And so we did originally introduce kind of something, pops of color, but Mm -hmm. it was definitely not a fashion forward brand, right? It was a function forward brand. We, we, We wanted to make a better product. At the same time, we wanted something that felt new and fresh and innovative. And so we kind of lent into design early on, but as we expanded across multiple categories, which now today, of course, we have dress socks and no-shows and kids and, you know, collaborations and partnerships and ski and performance and all these other subcategories. But, you know, it wasn't until, you know, we didn't have all of those on day one, right? We've kind of built into those categories as we've kind of grown the business over time.
1: Tell us a little bit about... The customer and how you've conceived of your customer. Do you think of your customer? Do you think of this as uh, socks as a service, like a SaaS business, where where you own the sock <laughs> relationship for the for the for their whole life, or is this very transactional, a gift or a one off?
0: No, I mean, so what we've seen over time, and I think again, this was origin This was part of the original hypothesis was we knew that this category had had a natural replenishment cycle built into it, right? These are products that people are putting on first thing in the morning, they're taking off as the last things at night and they're wearing them closest to their body. So. By, nat, by 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 the natural function of how you use the product, you wear through it over time. And our feeling was, okay, if we can produce a much better, high quality, comfortable product, once we get a consumer, we hope that they'll come back and rebuy time and time again. And so in the seven years that we've been in business, this actually has been one of our core, I think, you know, advantages is that we have this almost subscription like repeat purchase behavior Built into our product category. And then on top of that, because it's a fun brand, it has a mission, the product is easy to size. We have a large giftable component, which actually fuels kind of the word of mouth type of our business. So we get these kind of core consumers who come and buy our products, and then they become so feverish with the brand that they're then buying the product for other people. And once those people get one of our socks in their sock drawer, it's basically like putting in a sharp knife into a, a, you know, a drawer full of dull knives. Once you experience the sharp knife, you never want to cut with the, with the dull knife ever again. And so naturally we see people over time progressively changing over their entire sock drawer. And now we're starting to see the same thing with the introduction of underwear and t-shirts, the same thing is happening in those two product categories as well.
1: Yeah, you know, I want to just underscore a couple of points. I mean, one of the things we do in the show, we try to teach entrepreneurs, <laughs> about powerful practices. And and this idea of finding some kind of recurring revenue is is just huge. And because you can think about lifetime value over many transactions, not just over a, a single transaction. And I also love this idea that there's sort of a core that has that recurring theme, but then there are all these branches, all these different ways that the customer can engage, uh, building off that course. So I think those are just super two super important points that I want to yeah, just underscore. I, yeah,
0: I think that is so important because <laughs> I know how difficult it is to acquire customers, and let me tell you, it's a lot easier to keep them, especially if you have a good product and a good customer yeah. experience. I, if I ever had to start over again, I, I don't know how people who kind of operate in these. Single purchase, or where the purchase life cycles are, you know, seven or eight years, like the mattress business. Yeah. I'm like, holy, like, wow! Yeah. It takes so yeah. much energy and effort to acquire a customer, and then they may or may not come back in ten years. You're like, <laughs> I don't know. That's so stressful. Yeah.
1: yeah. Well, I, I, you know, I, I'm an investor, in and I've had him on the show actually. This guy Ajay Anand, is founder of Rare Carrot, and he sells engagement rings. And, you know, for most people, that's that's not a frequent purchase. And it's it's, you hope. And it's 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 brutal because he ends up paying Google, you know, 500 bucks uh, to acquire a customer. And you got to make it Uh all on that one transaction. It's a complete in in some ways, terrible, terrible business. So talk. Let's you know, I, I teach. I teach product management, and we do a whole seg- segment on growth. And I'm always looking for techniques. So how, how is it that you actually do acquire your customers? And maybe how has that evolved? Because I'm guessing it has evolved.
0: Yeah, it's evolved. And, and you know, I, I'm so glad you asked this question, because, you know, I think it's, it's really important for people to understand, you know, the nuances of kind of timing and market dynamics. Um, you know, I have, obviously entrepreneurs, particularly in the direct to consumer space to come to me all the time. And they're like, give me the tricks, give me the tips, you know, like Mm -hmm. how, how did you scale, you know, to a multi hundred million dollar business over the last seven years? And I was like, well, one of it was just timing, right? When we started, you know, we started in 2013, you know, CPA average cost per acquisition in digital marketing was like $4. And then it went to seven and then it went to 12 and then it went to 30 and then it went to 50. And now starting out, like you're lucky if you can average a $60 CPA, just because the competition is so, so high. So you need so much more capital in order to figure out who your customer is, where it is, because of course it's not $60 on day one. Like you burn through a lot of inefficient marketing spend in order to find kind of like who your core market is and what piece of creative works and what converts well on the website and all these other things. So, um, for us, you know, it, it is, you have to kind of speak historically. And, you know, we started out heavy on Facebook. And as that market got more crowded, you know, we were lucky that we established, you know, some sort of a brand awareness and then search started to scale because search doesn't really scale if no one knows who your brand is. I always use this as an example. Like if you searched for socks when we were, you know, in 2013, you'd be like, what the hell is a bombus? Like, I don't know what a bombus is, so I'm not going to I've never Mm. heard of that brand before, so I'm not going to buy from them today. Pretty good chance you probably have heard of us, or your friend has said, "Oh yeah, they're the best socks I've ever worn," or you've heard some heard us on a podcast, or you know SiriusXM or one of these things, and then you go, "Right, okay." And so now our conversion rate on search is so much higher. So we've evolved over time to actually have a multi-channel marketing strategy, not dissimilar to all the big brands, right? Like Coca-Cola doesn't advertise. At the Super Bowl, hoping that in that moment you're gonna run out to the store and buy a six-pack of Coca-Cola. It's a multi-touch point, you know, marketing strategy that over time they're kind of, oh, right, Coca, I love Coca. And then when you're thirsty and you're hot, you know, you're like, ah, I really want a Coca-Cola. Like it's that, it's that brand marketing yeah. over time that brands have to shift from kind of that early day you know, direct model to kind of thinking more holistically as a brand.
1: It's super interesting. I want to underscore that point too. I hadn't really thought about it that way, but what you're saying is that when you go search on even a very searchable term, uh, you know, whatever, uh, merino wool dress socks, mm-hmm. that when you look at the search results, part of the reason you click is not just the ad, but also whether is also the brand equity of the exactly. of the company advertising, and so building brand actually enhances the the, the yeah, paid search that's, sure. that's 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 super let's cool. use yeah. an
0: example that everybody could relate yeah. to right if you search uh 75 inch led television right and huawei comes up or sony comes up in all likelihood you'll be like i know what sony is and you're going to click on sony versus some like you know random brand
1: that you've never heard of yeah so, I assuming mean, you're Looking in New York, let's say. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, if if you're just joining us, you're listening to Launchpad on SiriusXM 132. I'm Carl Ulrich, and I'm speaking with Dave Heath, who's the CEO and co-founder of Bombas.com. And Dave, uh, let's make sure we get the full value out of the podcast. So let's make sure everyone knows how to find your your website. It's b o m b a s Bombas.com. And I think nice. it's a uh, it's it doesn't require spelling, which is a good feature of a name, but Bombas.com is where you find (laughs) easy to remember. Yeah. So, so Dave, um, I got, I got a question for you. So you, if I look at Crunchbase, I know that data is super noisy, but you said several hundred million in, in revenue and on Crunchbase, there's mention of cumulative capital of more than a hundred million, say $150 million. But you've been around quite a while, seven years. And if I read between the lead, uh, you read between the lines, you grew more organically, perhaps, perhaps with you know scrappier funding. And at some point, hit the gas. And I wonder if you would give us some advice on that on that trajectory and yeah. under what conditions you really ought to pour on the gas early if you have that choice and and, and whether the way you did it is optimal. Yeah, and I'll
0: I'll clarify that that. The no the the stuff on contrabate is very noisy. Um, you know, probably uh, probably too in the weeds for many listeners. But you know, you know the difference between primary and secondary capital. Um, so primary capital being ca- capital that ended up uh, on the actual balance sheet versus a transfer of stock value from one shareholder to another. Oh, um, no kidding. Yeah. yeah, so we we built the first $200 million of our business on only $9 million of capital raised. Um, but to your point, we spent the first 12 months building this business without a single dollar invested. We launched on on Indiegogo, the crowdfunding website. Yeah. We did $150,000 in our 30-day campaign. We took that money, placed our first production run, built a website. And then we scaled the business to over $500,000 in the first six months before we even Looked at outside funding, so that I think is a lesson that I love to teach entrepreneurs, which is you know I think over the last ten years we've we've glamorized the idea of going out these these vanity metrics around, oh, how much money did you raise and what's your right. what's your valuation? and it's like how many of those companies who went out to raise a hundred million dollars at a billion dollar valuation, particularly in the consumer sector? went bankrupt, right? Or are still losing tens of millions of dollars every year. The reason that we were able to scale on such little capital is because we weren't interested in the vanity metrics. We were interested in building a good business with good unit economics and a good foundational financial model from day one. I wasn't concerned with trying to build the biggest company as quickly as possible from a top-line revenue perspective. I looked at the brands that I admire, the Nikes and the Lululemons of the world. These were not brands that raised $100 million and got valued at a $1 billion in three years. These were brands that brick by brick over... 20, 30 years became some of the most enduring and loved brands in the world because they had a playbook of create a great product, have a good customer experience, invest in the brand, right? And stand for something and just reinforce that message over and over and over again. And so that was the way that we wanted to build this business. We were just like, we wanted to acquire customers profitably. We wanted to make sure that customers came back and rebought because that told us that they really liked the product. And once we saw some of those early hypotheses prove out in terms of just product market fit, the rest of it all came down to execution, right? And that's when we started to take on some capital in order to put some fuel on the fire from a marketing spend perspective, but also start to be able to invest in team and technology and products that actually enhance the underlying business model. And we've been EBITDA profitable since year two, um, and so again, that core focus on just building a good fundamental business um, I think has served us really, really, really well today where we're not relying on outside capital uh, to continue to grow the business. We're solely yeah. self-funded.
1: Yeah, so let me drill down on that. It, you know if I were teaching a class on this question, I would say find product market fit, find that as, as scrap in as a scrappy way. As possible, and then when you're ready to apply capital efficiently, do it. The exception, though, is if there are any kind of network effects where being sure. er, being early early is super important. You know, if you're WhatsApp or Venmo, you you, you know you can't screw around. I, I said the two categories, right? That.
0: And it's not surprising, this is where venture traditionally was born out of, right, is in technology and in biotech and pharma, right? Because typically you have to lose tremendous amounts of money until you get the network effect of scale. But that's not how good consumer brands were built. And unfortunately, I think the guys, the firms and the the people who were very successful in tech investing – they started to sit on so much dry powder and they were like, well, what else yeah. can we invest in? And then all of a sudden direct to consumer started to feel like, right. well, it's kind of like technology because they use the internet and it ain't, it's like, it's a yeah. consumer man. Right. Like it yeah. takes time to build, yeah. you know, it takes 12 months to produce a product, right. It's not like, Oh, just put some engineers in the back room and you'll have a new product in 24 hours. It's not how it works with a physical product.
1: Um, yeah. Yeah. So, so I want to, I want to change gears. I keep asking all these self-serving questions because so I'm so curious about how you navigated I, these hilarious. challenges as an entrepreneur myself. But so if if I think about your supply chain, I, I would guess that historically this kind of stuff has been made in in uh you know Southeast Asia, uh, some you yeah. know, a long ways away. And and but I think socks, if I if I remember correctly, they're made on knitting machines, probably that can be bought anywhere in the world. And I wonder if you're if you could talk a bit about the challenge, current challenges in supply chain and whether you're thinking about how to source these things has changed given the current logistics challenges.
0: Yeah, it hasn't really. Um, I mean, so about 90 percent of the world's sock production comes out of China. Um, and, you know, the the storied history of obviously apparel manufacturing is that the U.S. government with, you know, regulations and, you know, cost of labor made it far too expensive, especially from sourcing raw materials to operate those businesses here. And they just didn't invest in it the same way that the, you know, Asian governments did. Um, Even to this day, Asian governments provide energy subsidies to factories so that they can run more efficiently and be more competitive on the global landscape from a cost perspective. And as you pointed out, right, there's very little manual labor involved in sock manufacturing. Um, But what it is, is, again, they they're able to kind of run these machines, um, you know, in these warehouses on subsidized energy from the government Mm. uh, at a rate that that no one in the U.S. could ever compete against. Um, You know, despite the challenges, I think, you know, we saw over the last few years, you know, the one thing that's a benefit of of kind of the, the way that the Chinese government runs, you know, their system is that. When they tell everyone they're shutting down for COVID, they all shut down. There's no, I'm not wearing a mask or, you know, I'm <laughs> not getting vaccinated. Yeah. It's like, you do what we tell you to do. And so right. they were able to actually bounce back as an economy very, very quickly. Um, and, and we've had very little disruptions. Um, and, and we produce in Southeast Asia and we produce in South America. We do have some U.S. manufacturing, um, but the core of it is in, uh, in the Chinese market.
1: Yeah, and I guess as I think about, it, I I just literally yesterday got a quote for a container from from Southern China it was twenty two thousand uh, dollars, and which is you know like four times what I'm used to paying. Um, yeah, you but see, at you, one point last year it was forty thousand dollars. Well, I, I'm glad I missed that, but <laughs> uh, but uh, I guess you can fit a lot of socks in the container. Is part of the reason okay. that is yeah yeah. All right, I want but, to. But we think that these.
0: I mean, supply chain. You know, uh, uh, at least everybody universally kind of feels like this is temporary, and at some point it'll recorrect. So you kind of absorb the cost temporarily, and uh, supply and demand will will level out over time.
1: Yes, this is the thing. Entrepreneurs are optimists. It's 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 good. I'm, it's good. <laughs> so, Dave, you let's let's circle back to where we started. You started this story by telling telling about seeing the need for socks and homeless shelters, um, you are a b corp if i understand correctly and you have stated social mission as being super critical i guess there's a few questions here one is have you do you do you think anybody cares out there in the world other than you and your employees maybe talk a little bit about about that like is it is it a material is it a material Factor in your success of the business, or should you just take the the profits you make in socks and invest it and and give give directly?
0: Yeah, it's it's a material reason that you know the over five million customers that we have um, continue to buy our products. So for seven years running, um, mission and high quality product are the number one and number two reasons that people buy. And sometimes wow. the order the order gets flipped depending on. What marketing campaign someone comes in on. So if we run our 10 million pairs donated campaign, they'll say, "Oh, it was the mission, is the reason I came, and the high quality products, the reason I stayed." If we're running a you know marketing campaign on our new performance running sock, they'll say, "Well, the reason I came is for the sock, and then you know I stayed for the mission." Um, but we consistently see, and 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 I think the 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 illusion that it's just Gen Zs and millennials that care about giving back is 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 a false narrative propagated by the media. There's a large contingency of people out there that just want to be involved in something that does good. And we're resonating with those folks. And I think you know, more than ever, I think this world needs more compassion. And I think people are shifting their dollars to things that just make them feel better as a person, not only in the product that we make, but in the uh, impact that we're having in the
1: community. Yeah, well, let's, let's close there on that inspiring note. Um, Dave, it's been super interesting. So thanks so much for making the time.
0: Thank you, Carl. Appreciate it.
1: All right. You all can find Bombas socks, underwear, other items, everything for the top drawer at B-O-M-B-A-S, bombas.com. We need to take a short break and we'll be back soon. Stay tuned. I'm Carl Ulrich and this is Launchpad Business Radio, Sirius XM 132.
0: This is Reshma Sajani, founder and CEO of Girls Who Code, and you're listening to Business Radio on Sirius XM.
1: Launchpad. The grand vision is often not in place when you launch. You have some little wedge that you're passionate about, uh, but in any kind of market where there's a lot of disequilibrium, you quickly become one of the experts. Uh, within a couple of years, and you're actually in a position to make a, a better move, a better, a, a better second move uh, as, as you go forward. I think that's a great insight as well. Launchpad Mondays at 5 p.m. East on Business Radio.